And so we found before they did their first release, so while they're still feeding the fish, getting ready to release them, but they haven't put any in the water yet, the whales, would, were, they were around. Like they would see one and then the next day they wouldn't see it. And then maybe they'd see it the next day, kind of a thing. But if they saw a whale after they released their fish, then the whale was there every day for like, you know, a week or a period of time. My name's uh, Ellen Chenoweth and I am a whale foraging ecologist by training and I'm currently the director of the University of Alaska Southeast's Rural Alaska Students in One Health Research Program. Happy Thursday everyone and welcome back to Below the Tide. My name is Liz and I am your host. So this week we are sitting down with Ellen Chenoweth and we are talking all about humpback whale foraging. It seems like a crazy topic, maybe you don't know what it is, this is why we're here. Below the Tide is a podcast for everyone who ever growing up said, I want to be a marine biologist when I grow up. This podcast is for you. We sit down every week with a marine scientist, a marine expert, and we break down their work, we break down their research their stories and we just make it easy to understand and easy for you to learn and grasp for people who are visual learners i also post resources on twitter and instagram you can find below the tide at below the tide pod on both of those platforms those resources are going to be anything from definitions to maps videos pictures things like that that will help you follow along with the episode. I would definitely recommend checking them out because each of these experts send me videos and pictures of them out in the field and it kind of helps put a face to the name. It kind of helps, you know, you get perspective on what kind of boat they're working out of, what kind of, you know, environment they're working out of. Definitely recommend doing that. As with all podcasts that you listen to on any platform, I'm just going to say if you feel like leaving a rating, leaving a review, hitting follow, you know, downloading the episodes, it would be greatly appreciated. And if you ever have any questions or you want to just connect with me, just send me a private message on any of these social media that I listed above, Twitter, Instagram, you can start a conversation with me. I love to hear from you guys. I love to get questions. I'm always happy to chat. So as with all of my episodes, it's kind of tradition now. I hope that you grab a coffee and enjoy wherever you're listening from. I am a whale foraging ecologist by training and and I'm currently the director of the University of Alaska Southeast's Rural Alaska Students in One Health Research Program. Wow. So, yeah, so that means basically I am, I'm a researcher, um, but I also run a program for students and then teach classes for high school level students. Cool. Well, how about we start with the first half of that and the whale foraging ecologist? Yeah, so I, for my dissertation research, I studied humpback whales that feed on juvenile salmon at hatchery release sites. And so this is a type of prey that humpback whales hadn't been documented feeding on before. So juvenile salmon in general, but in particular at hatchery release sites. So probably they're out there feeding on juvenile salmon sometimes, and we're just uh, not very aware of it. 
Um, but at these hatcheries, the whales uh, or the fish tend to be aggregated more closely together. And that makes them a prime target for humpback whales because humpback whales are filter feeders. So that means that instead of picking off each individual fish, you know, like the way that maybe a, a wolf would pick a weak looking deer or something like that, um, whales are actually feeding in bulk. So they're <clears throat> opening their mouths, their throats actually expand and they can engulf about um, their body weights worth of water. So just like imagine, like picture like a pelican or something like that, that has this throat that can just like balloon out. And so what they do is they grab all that water and any prey that's in, in the water, um, in their mouths, and then they, they force the water out through their baleen. And baleen is just a, a structure in the, the mouths of these large whales that's made of the same material as your fingernails. And it kind of frays and creates these, these curtains of um, kind of overlapping um, threads that will trap small prey items and allow the whale to push all the water out because it doesn't want to swallow all that seawater. <clears throat> so they're feeding. Um, so that method of feeding means that they need to, they can feed on things that are really, really small. So they can feed on, I mean, whales much, much bigger than us and they feed on krill, which are, you know, smaller than a lot of the types of foods that we eat. Um, but it also means that they need to find dense aggregations of that food. And sometimes that's krill, these little shrimp like zooplankton, um, but it can also be small schooling fish and juvenile salmon are small and some of them do more school type behavior than others, um, but we found that the whales were figuring out ways to capture them. And so the questions that I was really interested in was, what does that mean for the whales in terms of the amount of energy that they're getting from their feeding? So if they choose to feed on juvenile salmon instead of something else, are they getting a lot of energy from that food? Um, or does the amount of time it takes for them to chase these fish down um, maybe the capture rates aren't very high. Maybe they're not getting very many every time they open their mouths. Um, <clears throat> you know, are these whales that feed at hatcheries, are they these innovators? You know, they're entrepreneurs. They figured out <laughs> this great new thing to feed on, or are they kind of these like goofy whales that aren't able to feed for some reason on, you know, with the, with most of the other whales. Um, so are they kind of this evolutionary dead end, just trying something out and it's not going to really pay off for them. So either one's kind of possible, but in order to kind of find the answer to that, we had to do a lot of measurements in the field of what it, what whales are doing when they're feeding on different types of prey, what the prey are doing, um, what the bodies of the prey are composed of. So we know how much energy is actually in the prey when they eat them. Um, and then do, do a comparison and then just do a lot of math and see kind of where the math takes you. Wow. So where was this work kind of based? Where was the hatchery that you were looking at? Yeah. So, and maybe I should explain what a hatchery is too, because I yeah. can't buy that, but it's something that's pretty common up here in Southeast Alaska. So we have, um, their aquaculture facilities that raise juvenile salmon from an egg, um, in a drawer in an incubator and hatch them as the name implies. And then as the fish get to be about the size of your finger or a little bit bigger, they are released into the ocean. So at that point, they are free range. These are not fish that are farmed their whole lives or anything. They don't they don't live as adults in captivity. 
Um, but they go out into the ocean and at that point, you know, they're not being fed anymore. They have to figure out how to feed themselves. They have to figure out how to avoid predators. Um, and a you know, smallish proportion of those will come back to the hatcheries as adults and fishermen will catch them. Um, so they support the local fishing economy that way. Um, so these hatcheries kind of exist in remote areas throughout Southeast Alaska. So the, the ones that I worked on are on the eastern side of Baranoff Island. So the city of Sitka is on the, the western side. Um, and then the eastern side is very remote. So it's, you know, mostly forest service land. And um, there's not, not a lot of people live there unless they're working at a hatchery. <laughs> okay, so I maybe I didn't realize that in the hatchery, they are then released into the ocean to kind of live their life as adults. Yes, exactly. And that's that's an important piece, because if you're buying Alaskan salmon, they've lived, they've lived their lives as adults, even though they may have begun their life um, at a hatchery as an egg. Right. And so I guess that makes it kind of accessible to these humpbacks to then kind of, are they hanging out at the release site? Like what is their, their plan? Yeah. So one of the neat things that we found was that um, if you, so we had a partnership with some of the folks that work at these hatcheries where they would do observations for us. So they just observe for 15 minutes in the morning and the afternoon, what kind of predators were around their hatchery. And then they'd let us know when they did their releases. And so we found before they did their first release. So while they're still feeding the fish, getting ready to release them, but they haven't put any in the water yet the whales would, were, they were around, like they would see one and then the next day they wouldn't see it. And then maybe they'd see it the next day, kind of a thing. But if they saw a whale after they released their fish, then the whale was there every day for like you know, yeah. a week or a period of time. So they did seem to be kind of checking out some different sites to see if there were fish in the water. And if there weren't, then maybe they'd go somewhere else that day. But if the fish were there, then they tended to come back and, and feed on those fish kind of over time. And like you were suggesting, when they release the fish, they kind of release a bunch usually all in one place at one time. And so unlike in a stream where juvenile salmon kind of trickle out at their own pace, um, here you have a whole bunch of fish that are suddenly available to the ecosystem. And the whales take advantage of that. And there's other predators that also take advantage of that. But the whales are very dramatic because these hatcheries are really close to shore. So mm -hmm. you've got whales just lunging you know, right up against the sides of docks in really shallow water, um, using their flippers to, to kind of slap at the water, maybe to throw um, And they're, you know, enormous animals. They're 40 feet long and they can, you know, weigh a ton per foot. So they're, uh, yeah, it's pretty dramatic to see a whale feeding in a hatchery. Yeah, I feel like that's something that you don't hear very much about, but I guess the whales are out there finding any sort of resource that they can. Yeah, and they've got a lot of options. Humpback whales are good at feeding on a lot of different things. They're really innovative, flexible predators, which is probably why they've been really successful recovering um, mm -hmm. from you know, being commercially hunted by whalers. Um, so they're one of the species that's bounced back really well. And maybe it's in part because of that. They're just really good at figuring out lots of different ways to feed on lots of different kinds of food. So the whales coming after the juvenile salmon, juvenile being how old would you say? Yeah, good question. They're about uh, six months to a year and a half old. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And so on average, how many do you think that they're taking at a time? 
oh, that was a big question that I had to answer in my <laughs> dissertation research. So I did a lot of modeling on that question. Um, and I would have to look it up for you because it, I did it for herring and for each type of juvenile salmon based on how fast they swim, um, how fast the whales were swimming when they were feeding on them. Um, so in terms of the number, uh, I don't, I'll have to get back to you on that. Okay. Um, I'll insert the number the here. I just don't have it in the units that you want, but, um, <laughs> like I have the, like, I can pull up the number of calories pretty easily. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was, they have to, they have to capture like a minimum amount just to recuperate the energetic costs of doing the feeding. Right. And so that was one of the main findings that I had was that a lot of times they're feeding on stuff that at least from what we know, and maybe they're doing, maybe they've got other tricks we don't know about, but based on what we know, they shouldn't be recuperating their energetic costs. They're actually probably losing weight as they feed. Um, so recuperating energy costs. So mm -hmm. the, so them feeding takes a significant amount of energy. Right. Yes. Okay. Yep. And I would just think they're just swimming with their mouths open. So does it, you know, well, it's interesting because on the one hand, they are, they are spending more energy when they feed than just when they swim. Um, because when you think about them opening their mouths and they're dragging that through the water, like, and if you think about dragging a bucket through the water, how much energy mm. do that take? So they're doing that with their whole bodies, which weigh a lot. And then, and they're in a very unhydrodynamic uh, posture when they're doing that. So that that's what takes the most energy. Um, but for smaller whales with smaller mouths, that, that difference is less. So mm -hmm. littler whales, um, can feed on things that are less densely aggregated and still recuperate their costs than larger whales. Larger mm -hmm. whales need more food to be more densely aggregated. Um, where was I going with this? Um, we were talking about energy costs and replenishing Yeah, that. right. Yes. So if, um, if the whales, but it's possible that a whale would be not recoup recuperating its energy costs, but it would still be an adaptive thing to feed there. So if you can imagine, for example, I, I like to think about whale energy the way that we think about humans and money, because mm -hmm. our relationship with food is just so different than most of the rest of the animal kingdom. Right. Um, <laughs> but if our relationship with money actually has a, is a better analogy because, you know, you think about, well, what if you have too much money, like you can just put it in the bank account and like, that's what whales do when they're storing energy in their blubber. Um, or you can make a big purchase. Like that's what happens when they have a big calf or they can take a trip. Like they can go down and migrate early and spend more time um, down in Hawaii trying to reproduce. Um, so what, but okay. So you can also imagine if you were in a situation where maybe you, you weren't um, making enough money to, to pay your bills but it might still be to your advantage to continue going to work to try to make the money that you can thinking that well you know i'm going to have a big opportunity next month where i can make up the difference um so like maybe my birthday's coming up and i'm gonna get checks in the mail from grandma or something right so right um, you may have other sources of income that come in at different times that are different than kind of your day job and so with the whales there's there's quite a bit of uh, variety over the season in terms of what prey is available 
Um, and so they might be what we would consider cutting their losses during certain times of the year. So feeding at a loss, but they're still better off feeding than if they weren't to feed at all. Right. Um, and just like, and because that's an option too, like they can just lay there and sleep and like <laughs> wait for better options. Um, or they can swim around and look for better options. Like those are things they can spend energy on. But it seems like based on what's available at the time of year that they're feeding on these hatchery fish, um, these whales, you know, it might be the best thing for them to do is just, just feed as best they can. And then, you know, hope that better things are going to come along later in the summer, which they typically do for whales. There's better krill and, and herring later on. Yeah. What seasons are they usually up in Alaska? So the, they feed at hatcheries basically in April and May and June. Um, and then they'll stay in Alaska <clears throat> sometimes until August, September. Some will stay as late as November, December, just kind of depends on the whale and how much uh, food they're able to feed on that, that summer. So in some years where there wasn't a lot of food, we had a lot of whales that stayed much, much later or maybe didn't migrate at all. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's more typical. Um, you know, we don't know. These, these whales had been so severely reduced by commercial whaling um, that they had been existing sort of in an ecosystem not at their carrying capacity so meaning that there was more food in their environment than there was whales to eat it and probably those things are going to balance out here pretty soon um so you know maybe it's maybe it's not outside of their biology biological range to not go migrate every year to maybe stay stay up here and spend a few years feeding before you head back and, and try to um reproduce so yeah, so they typically just go south to have their calves. Yep, to mate and to calf. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess warmer water would be nicer. Warmer water, and it seems like there's less maybe killer whale predation. Mm. Um, you know, we have, it's quite, there's quite a debate about why they would migrate. There's genetic advantages potentially as well. Um, more whales from different areas can mm -hmm. um, aggregate and, and exchange genes, but um, there's less killer whale predation in the lower latitudes as well. So that, that could be a big factor. Yeah, for sure. There's just so many, so many different aspects of it. And did you have any killer whales popping into the hatcheries at all? There, some of the hatchery staff did record killer whale observations, but I I saw some swim by, but they didn't okay. come in and hang out. Yeah, these these fish are quite a bit smaller than food what that they're they looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Well. Yeah. I just I feel like every time I hear about humpbacks, I'm always just amazed because how they can live with such huge bodies. Is yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It is really neat. And if if you're interested or if anybody who's listening is interested, we did, speaking of their bodies, we did a 3D scan of a dead humpback whale. Um, so if you're not squeamish, uh, on a, the University of Alaska Southeast Whale Lab website, you can go on a virtual tour of a dead humpback whale and you can be part of the team that tries to figure out um, maybe what caused its death. So. Whoa, yeah. that's so cool. I'll definitely have to link that. I'm that's what I'm doing after this. <laughs> cool. um, we had a veterinarian work with us on it, so it has a lot of good information about whales. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Did, like, did you, were you part of the team that found it? And 
Yeah, I'm part of um, the NOAA's stranding response team. So mm-hmm. if there's a, an injured or dead whale, they like to respond and get information about it to try to figure out, um, you know, these are very protected animals under the Marine Mammal Protection Act and, and some under the Endangered Species Act. And so if, if something's happening to marine mammals, the government needs to know about it. And so I'm part of the response team that helps to collect that information. So we um, had a little bit of grant money for education just in case a whale showed up. Like we basically, we hadn't had a whale, a dead whale in Sicka Sound in five years. So it was kind of a shot in the dark. This grant money only lasted a year, but I was like, let's just write it and we'll just have it. We'll get a dead whale. We'll be able to do this cool project. And then like, lo and behold, a, a whale did wash up that year and we were able to to scan it just inside and out as we were taking it apart and looking inside at its tissues. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty unique resource. 3D scanning is getting really um, easy now. Like I have it on my mm-hmm. phone, just uh, iPhone 13 and up, you can download um, 3D scanning software. So it's pretty cool. That's so crazy. Yeah. And so this program that you're a part of in terms of the response team, do you, are you out there a lot or not very many whales washing up? Yeah, it depends. Um, usually it's like a couple of things happen per year and sometimes, you know, we'll get a whale that's entangled. Um, sometimes it's like a sea lion. We had a, a live sea lion that came ashore one year that we had to figure out how to get it back into the ocean. Um, most of them are not still alive. Um, but yeah, and then a lot of times we'll get reports and we'll kind of check it out and you know, it kind of won't, we'll either won't be able to find what, what people reported or it's something different than what they thought. So, um, yeah, it's just this volunteer network. It's, you know, always inconvenient. (laughs) (laughs) Some important thing that you're trying to get done. And then like, there's a dead whale and how are we gonna, how are we gonna find people to, uh, to work on it? But, um, but it's just such an incredible experience. I mean, you spend so much time as a researcher, like squinting at whales through binoculars and just yeah. to right up to one and put your hand on it and look inside of it and look at its body. I mean, it's it's a really special opportunity and we don't want, you know, those those whales' lives to go to waste if, if they are available to be studied. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that must be a surreal experience to be like right next to a whale so on, y- on your turf. Yeah. I have a theory that is... This is not a scientific theory, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. <laughs> but you know, when you're in a boat and you see a whale, I think your brain is like, that must be very close because it's very large. And at some point when you get, you know, when you walk up to a whale, your brain just can't handle it anymore. It's just like, this is really big. <laughs> it's not close, it's just really big. Um, so yeah, when you get to that point where you're walking up to it, it just kind of blows your mind a little bit. Oh, for sure. Oh my goodness. That's wild. Thank you so much for listening to Below the Tide this week. I will see you next week for episode 25, another continuation with Ellen. But actually, I do have a sneak peek for you and I am just going to toss it in right here. That was kind of the other half of my dissertation. So I did a whole economic analysis so like you said, exactly, like I spent a lot of time wondering how does this affect the whales, but we also want to know how it affects the fishermen and the people that work at the hatcheries. Um, and so then the people that work at the hatcheries are kind of working on behalf of the fishermen. Um, so they're funded by fishing groups in part. Um, so the fishermen and the hatcheries are kind of on the same team in that sense. 
But um, yeah, so we found that when we look at the return rates of salmon, so how many salmon survive and come back to hatcheries in years where there's whales there compared to years where there weren't whales there, um, we found that about a million dollars total over five years from these five different sites was being lost to whales.